from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that blends terrifying fiction with literary aplomb. An architect of the surreal, he weaves real-life angst with supernatural dread. He's joining me today to talk about his new novel, Plank Children. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Michael Schutz. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am glad to be here. Thank you for joining me on this 29th day of January 2023. Oh, that's not possible. It can't be 2023. Is it not? And not the end of January either. That means we're almost at Christmas again. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. That is a definite possibility, especially if we're going with the linear or actually non-linear progression of time in your book. Yes. Speaking of which, I read your book, Plank Children, oddly enough, on the recommendation of Alana K. Drex when I had her on the show, and she did not lead me astray. (laughs) Plank Children was a potent blend of the psychological, supernatural, and historical, and I really enjoyed it. So thank you for taking the time to be here today. It's my pleasure, and thank you for those kind words. Absolutely. So the story begins with the protagonist, Miles, in his apartment, ruminating over the loss of a romantic relationship, as well as the loss of his nephew, who had died nine months prior. The catalyst for the story is when he sees that his brother-in-law has posted a recent picture of the family on Facebook that includes his recently deceased nephew. So... What was the reason that his sister and brother-in-law publicly posted a picture that would raise questions that they didn't want to answer? Well, I use, and I say this in the book too, I sort of use the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf model, Mm -hmm. not to give the ending away to that movie, but if you haven't seen it or read the play by now, then you're out of luck. But uh, (laughs) Ian's mother, Miles's sister, she's... uh, We'll just talk about the book. Don't want to give too much away, but I mean, she's got Ian. He is alive, but he's not with her anymore. So it's like she's doubled the loss, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And that's her link is she does have that picture and she just kind of goes for it. Just like Ian, who is afraid of Virginia Woolf, when Liz Taylor just kind of blurts it out. They weren't thinking and they just they did it. Okay, so it was just kind of a desperate attempt to make it more real. So there wasn't some like unconscious motive for maybe trying to spur Miles into going out there? I don't think so. Okay. The minute that Miles sees the picture on Facebook, the whole story takes on a surreal state of mind that just gets stranger as the story progresses. It reminded me of how the movie Psycho became strange and surreal the minute that Marion Crane steals the money and goes on the run. Wow. So is creating a surreal dreamscape a matter of how you write the behavior of the characters that interact with the protagonist or is it more about the protagonist's internal monologue boy i don't really think about it that much and what a compliment to be compared to (laughs) Hitchcock and robert block there Mm -hmm. i think probably more state of mind Mm -hmm. and how the state of mind creates the action you know A lot goes into the motivations of the character and the perceptions. Mm -hmm. So more of the internal monologue? I would say so, because it gets Miles spinning. You know, he's already kind of spinning because he's lost his boyfriend. And like you say, he's lost Ian, which kind of considered his son. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I say his almost son. And some of my promo material. And Miles is primed, and this just sets him off. So I think it might even be a way for him to kind of set aside what's bothering him, you know, the loss and everything. You know, it's easier to kind of follow a wild goose chase than just kind of sit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was funny. I uh, kind of a sidebar as far as Psycho's concerned. I went and saw the Houston Symphony do Psycho. Basically, they play the movie on a big screen and they have the soundtrack cut out and the symphony plays the soundtrack live. And so obviously you get to hear live violins, you know, grating when the stabbing's going on in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. So but yeah, I I had I wish I could see Psycho without knowing the ending, because it's so ingrained into the popular consciousness now. Mm. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid, but I still knew what the ending was. Mm. To see that movie and not know, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And so I very vividly remember the soundtrack. I had never, you know, obviously listened too closely to the soundtrack. It just kind of all becomes one thing. But when I'm seeing them separated live before me, as Miles is uh, leaving his in-laws' house, going to the bar, yeah. and then driving out, I hear that soundtrack going, that real yeah. surreal, weird soundtrack that follows Marion Crane around as she goes you know, nice. to her apartment, to the bank. So, yeah. Yeah. But in the story, one of the issues that Miles deals with is severe anger issues. Yes. And through his job and his love life, he's landed himself in an unfortunate position. And I thought that was a great addition to the story because he had to contend with his internal demons as well as external demons at the orphanage. Yeah. So 
What other characteristics of Miles would you say really incited the tension and the horror of the story? And were they by design or were they purely organic? A lot of it is organic. You can hear some authors talk about this, and it's so true. The characters do take over. Mm -hmm. One thing that I like to do when I'm writing a character is to give them some kind of a, a tick, if you will, but some kind of a sign of when they're nervous mm -hmm. or upset. So I don't have to keep saying, you know, this upset him. Oh, he was really bothered by this, you know, have something like, oh, he starts picking his fingers and oh, so now I know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So the rage started as that and it fit the character so well that it just, it embodied him. I think that he's probably awfully neurotic. I think that he has the compulsion to be right. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why he went up there. And like I say, it is organic. Mm -hmm. It's very organic. And I think that he wants to sort of be right and prove his sister wrong, like make some kind of a terrible point, which he does realize that he's doing, especially when he checks into the hotel. Mm. It's kind of like, I could just leave and let my sister believe that Ian's still alive. You know, if I follow through with this, would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? Yeah. You know, I can prove myself right, but then she's going to go through this whole psychological thing and she's already riding that razor's edge. Mm -hmm. So you're saying when you said give them some sort of a tick to indicate that they're anxious, is that what it was? Yeah. So yeah. are we referring to like his smoking habit or? Yeah, in a way it is because when you fall back on your character traits, when he's in a strange, weird situation. So, you know, he's just very stressed. Mm -hmm. So it's more of just what he's going through and a reflection of that more than anything. Gotcha. Well, as you said, when you were referring to Miles being neurotic, he engaged in a bit of magical thinking when it came to his relationships. And yeah. We find out in the end that the relationship that Miles had with his nephew, Ian, was not as good as he thought it was. Yes. So what role, if any, did a lack of self-awareness play in his issues? I like to think quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, and to be honest, my previous novel, Edging, was very much about my marriage ending. Okay. And so, yes, playing children is very much about me being in my 40s and needing to start over. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my jumping off point of Miles. The very root of Miles is rather autobiographical. So uh, lack of self-awareness, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that's like at all. It, it, it plays a lot because he, I think it becomes clear, like you say, when towards the end he realizes that he didn't know Ian very much. And there is one point in the story when he realizes this, when he thinks about it, you know, he gets the good stuff. He can go up there for a weekend and have his nephew come down for a long week and, you know, just 
have a fun time. They go to movies together and whatnot. But he doesn't know what goes on in Ian's life. He doesn't know Ian's problems at school, what he's actually like, his friends. He has no idea what Ian's friends are like. He doesn't really know what the home life is. He knows his sister. He certainly has some kind of idea. But, I mean, Miles is looking at things through his own bubble. So very much just a lack of almost too much of a self-awareness because he only sees things through his own Mm. perceptions, even with his ex, Jeremy, which was probably a contributing factor to the relationship, (laughs) was that Miles just thinks that everything, not that everything revolves around him, but that life is the way that he sees it. Well, I love well-crafted villains, and you may have to assist me with the pronunciation. Is it Dr. Schramm? Yes. Okay. Well, I guess Schramm, Schramm? if you want to be very okay. German. It's actually based on, I used the name, that's the title of, man, now I forgot his name, but the director of uh, Necromantic, he hmm. did that uh, movie Schramm. Okay. But I say Schramm as well. Okay. Well, I'll stick with Schramm. <laughs> okay. There we go. We'll be German strong. <laughs> so I love well-crafted villains and Dr. Schramm and the chaplain are diabolical, literally and figuratively. And the chaplain is very interesting because even though he preaches hellfire and brimstone, he still looks outside of religion to the pagan practices that Christianity absorbed. Yes. He was a man of faith, but also of science and the occult. And in a very strange way, you kind of find out at the end, he was sort of trying to save the children of St. Hamlin. Yeah. So what was it that you wanted the reader to feel about and feel toward the character of the chaplain? Um, I love villains too. Mm -hmm. And villains are the heroes of their own story. And that's what I wanted readers to feel about the chaplain. I wanted them, kind of going back to your previous question, how Miles is seeing the chaplain through the eyes of, God, this is a really terrible person. He's doing these terrible things. But deep inside, you know, the chaplain, he is kind of trying to do the right thing. And he started off maybe trying to do the right thing. but. For as big of a asshole as he was, you know, the chaplain doesn't know that he's a villain. Mm. Yeah. So I just, I like to convey that with my villains in that just make them as three-dimensional as possible so that it's not like just some evil cookie cutter, you know, oh, this is the evil chaplain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris Triana was on the show and I was talking to him about one of his villains And he was talking about how when he writes villains, he wants to make them people first. Otherwise, they just turn into a caricature of a villain like Dr. Claw. It's like, I'll get you next time. And (laughs) millennials and Zoomers that may be listening, Dr. Claw was the villain (laughs) in Inspector Gadget, which is an old cartoon, used to come on Nickelodeon. (laughs) Uh, Full disclosure. I used to stay home to watch Inspector Gadget marathons. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Didn't they make a... I mean, I know they made an older film of the cartoon, but wasn't there even something more recent that the guy from The Office was Inspector Gadget? Oh, 
I haven't heard of that, but I would watch that yeah. in a second. Who is the guy I'm thinking of? Steve Carell. Yeah, Steve Carell. <laughs> I feel like yeah. he was Inspector Gadget at one point, but I could be way off. Oh, are you thinking Maxwell Smart when he played? Uh, oh, that was Maxwell yeah. Smart. Okay, yep. I got yeah, you. Yeah, I got smart. Yeah. Well. You uh, were trying to trick me there. I was. I, I was. Actually, see? I wasn't. I'm just getting old. And, <laughs> you know, awesome. one of the big symptoms of Alzheimer's is confabulation, making up false memories. So <laughs> I'm already there. Oh, no. Really? Oh, no. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, when it came to Dr. Schramm, you painted him as a bit of a fat cat bloviating narcissist. Yes. So was his appearance and behavior meant to make the reader dislike him right off the bat? And if so, how do you determine the most effective appearance for a villain? I wanted him to look like a political cartoon <laughs> of a Republican. Okay. I you know, just flat out, just all those political cartoons of those big, fat, uh, three-piece suit. <laughs> gravy coming out of their mouth. <laughs> yeah. 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 I got it you. Just, yeah. So it was. Uh, yes. I wanted people to dislike him on site. Gotcha. And then let, you know, because he had his own shit going on where he wasn't pure evil and villainry, although a little bit, a little bit more so than the chaplain. Yeah, his, uh, well, I don't want to get into that because it might lead to a spoiler, but I was thinking his appearance kind of reminded me of when you hear about congressmen that make money off of giving government contracts to people that donate to their campaigns, and they're just kind of like sitting there, like as you described, the vest, the buttons are like stretched yep, to their limit and they're game. sitting there just like yep. a <laughs> yeah. yep. money coming out of uh -huh. his pocket yeah. as he's handing over the contract uh, Alibur. a cigar hanging out of his mouth <laughs> yes yes yep you got it gotcha <laughs> well janelle was a very endearing tragic and complicated character Almost throughout the entire novel, you didn't quite know what to make of her. Yeah. And there was a very interesting dynamic between her and Miles that was almost romantic, but obviously not due to the fact that Miles was gay. But what I wanted to know was, what was it then that drew Miles to throw caution to the wind when it came to helping her and her son, Theodore? Um, Self-redemption. And he had the nagging suspicion almost all along, that Ian wasn't what he thought. He didn't want to admit it to himself, but Theodore was definitely the kind of kid that could benefit from somebody looking out for him. Mm. And once Miles discovers who Janelle is, he feels like he can be the hero role, which is something that Miles isn't hasn't been, could never have been in his old life. You know, he's been sitting around pining after Jeremy and his old relationship. Mm. And then he wanted to investigate Ian and kind of prove his sister wrong. I mean, Miles is a very flawed character. Mm. So he found a couple people that he could almost start over with and he could try to protect. And two people that he actually kind of could take the blinders off and actually see them for who they were. Mm. 
but he was unable to do that with people that he already knew. Okay. But with fresh people, he could. It's kind of his own redemption story that he could create. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I was assuming. It was kind of like when he found out that his relationship with Ian wasn't quite what he thought it was, he referred to Ian as his almost son. It seemed like he could flex that father muscle, that paternal instinct that came out very frequently with Ian and yeah. and towards the end, maybe get some closure with the loss of his relationship with Ian by yeah. doing what he could to help Theodore. Yeah. Well, there are five stages of grief. The first one being denial, which at the beginning is what Miles thinks his sister and brother-in-law are going through due to posting what he believes is a Photoshop picture of them and his nephew. But at the end, there is definitely the attainment of acceptance. So did the five stages of grief play a part in the progression of the story? And if so, how did you utilize the other three? It did play a large part. Because grief can apply to a lot of different things. And he was grieving the end of his relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the five stages can be found in, I think, anybody. Anyone's loss of a long-term relationship, they'll do that. I basically just use them as guideposts. You know, if I could reference them and keep them in the mind of my readers, that was good. But that was almost kind of just a thing for me as a guidepost and a touchstone, really. Because as I think we all know, the five stages of grief are not like boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. They sometimes come out of order. When you move into the anger stage, that doesn't mean that denial still is there. So I just liked that. I just like that Miles was a mess <laughs> and the stages were a good through line mm -hmm. that I could use. Yeah. And they don't happen. Boom, boom, boom. And sometimes you get stuck in one of them. And it seemed like Miles was stuck in denial for quite some time. And yeah. then and the depression. Yeah. Very, very much so. Yeah. And it's almost like his entire foray into St. Hamelin was the bargaining stage. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Well, your writing is so clean and literary that if I wasn't reading horror, I would think that I was reading a short story in the New Yorker. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, wow. Which okay. I mean, I mean, as a compliment, I don't know what your opinion of the New Yorker is, but I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> no, that's, uh, you know, that's, wow. That's amazing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So how long did it take you to find the particular writing style and voice that we find in <laughs> Plank Children? Oh, I like to say that if I could write Plank Children, then anyone can write anything. That was the <laughs> hardest book I have ever written in my entire life. Mm -hmm. there, it was, there were three complete and total drafts. I mean, just like almost completely different. So it took me a long time. Uh -huh. it took me a very long time. But uh, I think that was more plot, making things go. I, I don't know. I just, I write how I like. Shirley Jackson is one of my writing idols. Mm -hmm. 
And I believe the lottery was published in the New Yorker. And I think of her writing as just being so beautiful that it's not like I'm trying to write a pastiche of Shirley Jackson in the the Haunting of Hill House, but Mm -hmm. that's my favorite novel. And I don't know. You know, voice is not something that I pay attention to. It's just how it comes out. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it came out so effectively for certainly some readers. Yeah, she couldn't quite put it into words. When Alana told me about reading Plank Children, she said, I love the way he writes. We were messaging and she was talking about that. And I didn't quite know what she meant until I read it. And still, I can't even really put it into words. Just very clean and literary. So, and Well, what I like to do is... I talk about my dramatic skeleton, Mm -hmm. and that's what I do. Before anything else, I like to, if just in my mind, have an outline of the dramatic elements. Because if you don't care about a character, if you don't know them, who cares what happens to them? Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of horror movies get wrong. Mm -hmm. Just introduce characters in order for them to suffer and get killed off. I don't feel anything. I don't care about them. I don't know about them. Mm -hmm. And I want people to care about and know about my characters. So I start with the drama of what's going on, the relationship with Jeremy, how he feels about Ian, his family, his sister, what he's trying to do while he's at St. Hamlin's, how that affects him. And then I start kind of layering on the horror and the surreal, which isn't to say that they're two separate stages of writing or phases. They're very much linked and go hand in hand, except for that initial, you know, I like the drama of stories. I like those 70s novels, you know, like the old Stephen King, Mm -hmm. you know, like when you read The Shining, you know, that is a very thickly characterized novel. And I really love that. I love paying attention to the characters. Yeah. Well, assuming you have a lot of story ideas, what is it about a particular story idea that makes you decide to bring it to life? Wow. I don't even know if I have an answer to that. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it has to intrigue me. You know, It's actually what I just commented on a friend's Facebook post. I like to write what I would like to read. If there's something out there that's like, man, I wish that XYZ was out there for me to read, I'll think, well, I better write that. Mm -hmm. And then it will be out there to read. You know, the first audience member is me. (laughs) I'm the first first reader Mm -hmm. that's going to go through this. So, Yeah, so... You mentioned before we started recording that you're relaxing on the couch with your laptop. (laughs) Is that your writing medium and atmosphere, or do you have a more formal setting when you get into the... I have my office with all my books. I have my formal desk. I do have my office. I'm taking a bit of a sabbatical this month. That's what I'm calling it. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Sounds very spiritual. (laughs) It it, it is, actually. (laughs) Not even facetiously, it actually is. Mm -hmm. I've had quite a, (laughs) yeah, been going through some stuff. And, you know, I want to go in some different directions in my writing, in my life. And like when you were talking about ideas, 
a lack of ideas is not my problem. It's a lack of focus and mm. finishing yeah. because I have so much that I want to accomplish and write. I have so many notebooks filled with what could be novels and novellas and short stories that I just have to sit down and do. Mm -hmm. So I need to stop the sabbatical and get to fucking work. But <laughs> uh. Yeah, when you were talking earlier about having three separate drafts, that's what always blows my mind about writing a novel is how do you handling that much text that much information i just to me like if i was to visualize it it would be like trying to carry like 40 kegs stacked on top of each other like how did you how do you manage that much information lots of notebooks okay lots and lots of notebooks even when i have a scene that just is not coming out right i will sit down with the notebook and the pen Mm -hmm. And sometimes the old fashioned way will get it, will at least get me started, but sometimes just really comes out right. Boy, especially with playing children, that your analogy, it was like juggling chainsaws, too. <laughs> but, you know, I just have to, and my memory's going. Mm -hmm. So that makes it tough. So I really have to write everything down. Yeah. You should see the amount of notebooks that I have for playing children. It's, uh, it's impressive. <laughs> there is a lot of juggling involved yeah well i was going to ask you if your stories are purely works of imagination or do they come from dark places and experiences that you've had which you kind of gave the affirmative to when we were speaking earlier about kind of the genesis of edging and plank children so if it's not too personal, could you, you know, not necessarily plank children or edging. I know you write a lot of short stories, but a particular story based on a dark experience that you wouldn't mind telling us about? Um, well, boy, what really first comes to mind is edging okay, and just watching my marriage fall apart. And when something happens to me that's very painful Mm -hmm. I find that shaping it into a fictional story, putting it on the page is an exorcism mm. of that event because then it's, it's fiction. It's a story and it's almost like it didn't happen to me anymore. Ah. So, and as for the whole autobiographical question, which um, you kind of hinted at, it's peppered throughout. I mean, most of, you know, I mean, it's fiction, it's imaginative, but it's peppered throughout mm. with things that I feel, things that have happened. But I definitely think that it would be a mistake to say that, okay, Michael is Miles or, you mm. know, any one of my characters. Because there's a little bit of me in Shram, there's a little bit of me in Theodore, you know. I used a lot of my early days when I wasn't very popular in school mm. to, to inform Theodore's character. Gotcha. But it's mainly imaginative. It's sort of like that dramatic skeleton I was talking about because mm. I can use my own life and experiences as a support structure and go out from there. And a lot of times as I go out, I can sort of erase the autobiographical parts and be like, oh, that's just me kind of mental masturbation mm. there. Get rid of that. That's for my therapist, not for my book. <laughs>
Well, I mean, speaking of therapy, like you said, you feel it's been exercised by being turned into fiction. Very cathartic, I'm assuming. Very Very, cleansing. Yes. Okay. Makes it manageable. I think it's manageability as well. And I hope that it makes the story more real. Mm -hmm. And certainly from what you said, Alana, and kind of the general response I've had from playing children, I think that worked. Yeah, definitely. um, Yeah, I just, I want to make my characters real. And I really look to Stephen King and his influence for that. I think Stephen King is the master of character. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's kind of my literary idol in a lot of ways, but especially in character. His people just breathe. They just really breathe. Even his ancillary characters, which I love. And I know other people, that's their criticism of why they don't like King. But it's like, even just the briefest sketch, you know, the milkman, mm-hmm. you know, he'll just be driving by and you'll know what he's going to do when he goes home or where he went to high school or some damn thing. Yeah. You know, I just, I love real people. I like my characters to be real people. Gotcha. Well, most writers tell me that they work with a loose outline that's subject to change as the story is written. And you had mentioned something, I forget what you called it, the character, what did you refer to it as? My dramatic skeleton. Dramatic skeleton, yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned something about that, but as far as an outline, do you work with a loose outline? Most of the people I interview say that subject to change. Yes, very much so. I outline more as I go along. Mm-hmm. And I'm outlining more as I get older. And, you know, I started off with short stories. I still love the medium. I love short stories, love reading them, writing them. But a novel is such a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I will start sketching out an idea and just sort of some notes. I'd like to call them notes more <laughs> than an outline, mm-hmm. you know. Out of notes. But then as I start writing, I can see where things are going. So then I will start more actual outlining. So yeah, like you mentioned, very subject to change. But to keep track of things, I am outlining more and more. You know, I used to be a pantser, mm. you know, but I can't do that anymore. My memory <laughs> is just making me write things down more. Well, which story would you say had the most dramatic turn of events as you were writing it? Like you kind of had a story that had a trajectory going this way. You had it in your head, but then as you're going along, kind of following this loose outline, you're like, you know what? No, it'd be much better if it went this way. Well, not exactly that, but in my first novel, my main character was supposed to be gay and he just wasn't. I wanted him to be gay. Uh I'm gay. It was kind of about my arrival in San Francisco. Uh But the kid just wouldn't be gay for me. So so he's like, okay, he's straight. Fine. I'll give you a girlfriend. Jesus. Get off my back. What a pain in the ass. I know. Man, you disappoint me so much being straight. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I hear everybody say is that the characters have minds of their own and more often than not they don't cooperate they don't it sounds like writer bullshit it really does but it's so true yeah it's so true they just want to go places you know we breathe i shouldn't say that 
That sounds really, <laughs> but we breathe life into them and then they just kind of start going their own way. Uh-huh. And you got to let the story go where the story is going to go. Yeah. Which is why I had so many drafts of Plank Children, because it's like, okay, I don't want the story to go there, so I have to go way back to the beginning and start over again. Oh, okay. Well, you mentioned in your bio that you grew up reading Ray Bradbury and Stephen King, which makes sense given the genre you write within. But are there any authors you read that might be surprising to your readers? Um, I love Steinbeck. I love Hemingway. Oh, Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Love Hemingway. Probably the most surprising would be Don DeLeo. Okay. God, I just love that writing. It's yeah. it's almost conversational, but it's like reading Don DeLeo is like when you see that one family member at Thanksgiving who's like so much smarter than you uh-huh. that you kind of have to be like, okay, I got to put my smart hat on when I go say hello to him because he's going to start talking about Virgil and Ovid Uh crap like that (laughs) I'd start with White Noise with Don DeLeo that's my favorite okay well when you first started writing seriously with the intent to publish and completed your first book what did it feel like to hold a completed manuscript which can be an elusive creature for a lot of aspiring writers and how did you celebrate Unfortunately, my first novel was a weird publisher. Uh, I was going to say snafu, but that's not right. They were being taken over. So it was an ebook only. Mm-hmm. And, and my first novel is out of print. And I say blessedly so, because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So thank yeah. God, no remnants of it. I do plan on revising it. But with Plank Children, I got myself a nice cigar. Mm-hmm. Nice Arturo Fuente, mm. Romeo y Julieta. Very and nice. yep, when I got my box of books, because I really didn't know if Plank Children was going to make it. I mean, it took three, four years to write. Mm-hmm. There were times when I wanted to stop. I didn't know if it was going to be any good. I had so many doubts. But when it was finished, I knew that I had done my best and I knew that I had a good story. You know, it's not like, Oh, I have the Holy Grail in my hands of work. (laughs) But I knew that it was good. I was satisfied with it. And so, yeah, I had a cigar on hand. And when I finally held that book, and I designed the cover as well. So it really was my baby. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's how I celebrated. Okay. Well, when it comes to the indie writing community, what is something that you'll find that you won't ever come across in a big box bookstore? as far as writing style, writing genre, just something that if you weren't involved in the indie writing community, you would completely miss out on? I think that indie writing, you can go into a lot more disturbing places, Mm -hmm. which is definitely where I want to start taking things. Hell yes, Um, do it. I'm finding it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Being scared is nice, uh-huh. you know, writing scary is nice, but what really stays with me is when something is really disturbing. My best friend, fellow author and co-host, we had a podcast together, Darkness Dwells, our highest compliment that we can pay a movie or a written work is, that was fucked up. <laughs> and 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I want. That's what you can find in indie cinema and in writing as well. Some fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fucked up shit, you know what <laughs> I just got finished watching about a week ago? What's that? The uncensored, uncut version of a Serbian film. Oh, oh my! I, I love that movie. God, that was intense. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know that an uncut version existed. Yeah, Jesus Christ! What more could they do? Oh, it's pretty good. I mean, I don't know. I've never seen like a censored version. I just know what's in this version. <laughs> it is intense. Yeah. yeah, I found out about it listening to a podcast with Sir John Spasojevic, and I think it was in 2018 it was released. It's got like a making of and a bunch of extras. You can get the DVD on Amazon. So what I love about a Serbian film, which, you know, I had this idea in college and I wrote a blog post about it on darkness dwells, Mm -hmm. but what a Serbian film does, what I've always thought is that in all horror, there's an undercurrent of sex and it's usually some sort of deviant sex. I mean, you read Clive Barker, you know, and in a magica, there's that great, wonderful sex scene with that other being that's sort of sexless and yet all sexes. And I hate to say it, but, you know, in his earlier days, Stephen King kind of made some loose allusions to homosexuality that weren't very complimentary. I think that the most in-your-face examples of that undercurrent of sex in horror would be the slashers of the 80s. You know, I mean, how many boobs did we see in those movies? And I thought, what would it be like to reverse that and have a story that's about sex with an undercurrent of horror? And that's what a Serbian film did Mm -hmm. and does so wonderfully. And it's so panned. And it's almost like you can't say that you liked it because if you did, you're, you're <laughs> something's like a, wrong a with you. Psycho. But that's <laughs> what that movie did. I don't know if that's what the filmmakers intended, but boom, there it was. And that's why I like that movie is because it reverses it. Uh-huh. Instead of the undercurrent of sex in horror, there's an undercurrent of horror in the sex. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I ever heard it out of the mouth of Sirjan Spasievich, but I've listened to multiple people that have like YouTube channels that review movies, and they all said that the movie was a response to Serbian film at the time that had become really politically correct. And when I say politically correct, I don't mean like yeah. the, the type of stuff that's going on right now. I mean politically yeah. correct, like... You're not allowed to have violence. A woman is not allowed to be injured. An animal is not, you yeah. know, like stuff like that. So like the yeah. point of the movie, I guess, was just a gigantic middle finger to Serbian yeah. cinema at the time, which I don't know if that's, that's true or I've not. That's what I've heard too. Yeah. That's what I've heard too, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you do outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Um, I majored in, I double majored in English and philosophy, mm-hmm. which I didn't know at the time, but that's what Clyde Barker did too. Oh. And I did that because I wanted to expand my mind. Just be open, be open to new ideas. Go down the rabbit hole on some conspiracy theories and try to understand it from other people's point of view. Just open yourself up to 
as many thought lines as possible. That's what I would say. Okay. A lot of nonfiction as well, as far as reading is concerned? Um, that would help. I watch a lot of documentaries. Hmm. I don't really read nonfiction, but I watch a lot of documentaries. Okay. So, yeah. You know, and I mean, great example of that is Stephen King's Mr. Mercedes. I mean, that whole beginning when those people are plowed down by that car, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. So he took that actual thing and, you know, created a trilogy and then two books about the character of Holly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think nonfiction would be good. Different authors, different genres and pay attention, which is something that I have trouble doing. But I've heard people say that that helps mm-hmm. as if you pay attention <laughs> to things in life. Oh, um, screwed. <laughs> yeah, I know. I feel the same way, but I've got it's, ADD it's working so, so bad. far. I'm, I'm taking it, but uh, listening to people's conversations hmm. is interesting. Well, you've talked about it a little bit. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about the premise of your previous novel, Edging? Edging is about a new designer drug that creates a very short but intense hallucination effect of being in a horror movie nice it uh, it makes you feel like you are inside of a horror movie it gives you basically a bad trip that lasts for a very short amount of time because you know if you're trapped inside of a full sensory horror experience mm-hmm. for too long that would like blow your circuits you know mm-hmm. so it's short acting but it carries with it such a punch it's sort of like a roller coaster ride or one of those haunted house things that you go to at the boardwalk, mm-hmm. whatnot, in a pill form. So it gives you that big rush for a very short amount of time. So it's also very addictive. And it runs rampant through this town, and the collective nightmares of the town folk catch the attention of this floating entity that I call the thirst, which eats the fears of the town and grows stronger. Wow. <laughs> and the trip is called edging. So you oh, take okay. this pill and you edge, which I know that there is a sexual. Yeah. When I heard the, the first time I was like edging, yeah. is this like a, I, you know what, when I did that, I kind of thought that it was only something in the gay community that we would know. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think that the straights would catch on. But then I found out that everybody knew it. So. Well, I mean, when you think about it, that's what tantric sex is, is edging. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At any rate, it uh, certainly catches people's attention, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, kill the title. Hmm. <laughs> what is this deviant? I need to uh, investigate further. Yes. well tell me about your novella and am i pronouncing it right unanok that's how i pronounce it okay (laughs) which is included in the lovely dark and deep anthology yes that started when i was thinking about how when you're bitten by a vampire if you're not devoured you turn into a vampire and i thought what if you could become a vampire through sex, through seminal fluid. Mm -hmm. And so it is a gay romance vampire novella. Okay. That takes place in Guatemala. It's uh, 
I really love it. Like nobody's ever read it. <laughs> I don't, you know, it, uh, it fit that anthology perfectly, but I don't think the anthology sold well at all. So I'm thinking about publishing it. And I just started, actually you, when you asked about it, when you emailed me, told me some of the things we might want to talk about, made me start thinking about it. And I like that story, which that's kind of funny because that could sound really self-serving. But when the story is outside of me, it doesn't seem like it was written by me. It's it's <laughs> this story that's like, gosh, maybe more people should read that, but not because it was written by me. It's just, <laughs> gosh, more people would like that. Yeah. It, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. Maybe it only happens to me. But yeah, it's about this young kid who comes from an extremely wealthy family. He's in Guatemala because... His family owns these coffee plantations, and he's being prepped to take over. But that's the last thing he wants. And he goes down there kind of to placate his father, but really he just wants to get out of his white bread world, you know, his waspish existence. And he wants to see more of the world, and he wants to see what, you know, life is like down in Guatemala because that's about the most foreign place that he could possibly think of. And he's got a ticket mm-hmm. right down there. And he falls in love with somebody who is a vampire. And as far as vampire stories go, it's more Anne Rice than it is anybody else. Okay. <laughs> it's a paranormal romance. I don't think it's very much like other things that I've written. So I just want to make it clear that it is a paranormal romance. And the title came from, I found one reference that a vampiric creature from that area was called a Unanak. Okay. Like I say, that's how I pronounce it. I don't know. But it's weird because I've gone back and I can't find that reference anymore. But I know it was there. I know I read it. I know I saw it. Maybe it was the Unanak manifesting itself temporarily so you could... I didn't immortalize. want to say that out loud. Yeah, of yeah. course it is. Immortalize it. it. And now they're going to be after you, Vince. Shit. Well, you know, Man. I can think of worse. I can think of, of the, worse uh, things than being a vampire. <laughs> What's that? Oh I, yes. <laughs> I can think of worse things than being a vampire. I mean, you never I die. Know. You stay <laughs> young forever. As long as they are the sexy ones, <laughs> yeah. not like you shrivel up and become some terrible. Yeah, no, no, no. I want to be like... Turn into Nosferatu instead of Brad Pitt. I want to be uh, Gary Oldman when he's seducing Winona Ryder. I want to be that yes. guy. <laughs> I have crossed oceans of time. Yes. Mm. Gosh. I think that's got to be my favorite depiction of Dracula. I mean, I think Gary Oldman's a goddamn genius, so I'm sure that yep. has yes. the majority to do with it, but yeah. And there are some movies that you don't even know that it's him. Yes. Well, like, that's, um, that was one, actually. That's one. But sometimes it's like, oh, my God, that was Gary Oldman. Do you remember him as Drexel in True Romance? No. The pimp Drexel? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Uh, yes. He plays Mason Verger in yes, Red Dragon. Yes, yes, You would never, ever guess that that was Gary Oldman. Yeah, even the part pre-getting his face chewed off. Or, yes. No, he cut himself. I yeah. Think. Yeah, cut his face off. Yeah. I mean, even that small scene, if you look closely, you can tell, oh, yeah, I guess that is Gary Oldman, but like yeah. it's... But you still have to squint. It's mm-hmm. still difficult to tell, even in that little, you know. Yeah. Would you like a papa, Mason? 
And, you know, I don't even know how I ended up watching this movie because it's really not my style. But the Scarlet Letter, he was amazing in that. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen that. Yeah. I mean, I can't even remember how I even ended up watching that. But, huh. man, just I any- have uh, my what am I watching slate is clean tonight. Maybe I'll look that up. Yeah. Yeah. He is a chameleon. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to say this. I love Daniel Day-Lewis. I think he's mm. my favorite actor. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw it. I don't even know where it is. I'm sure you could find this on YouTube. The premise is that Daniel Day-Lewis is such a great actor and his next role is Obama. And they got <laughs> President Obama to sit in a director's chair and pretend to be Daniel Day-Lewis as Obama. <laughs> hilarious. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to check that out. It was from a late night show from uh, James. What's his name? The one that does the sing alongs in his. I think that's what it's from. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. Very good. It can be found. Well, aside from your novels, you've had multiple short stories published in various media. Can you tell me about some of those? Gosh, what would you like to know? They are. They're my little treasures. I think it was Stephen King who said that he loves short stories because you don't have to explain the ending. (laughs) And I think I'm paraphrasing, but it's really true. When somebody invests for, you know, 300 to 1300 words, they want some goddamn answers. Uh But in a short story, you could just push them off the cliff. And I like that about them. Short stories are like little perfect gems (laughs) when you read them. And, Every once in a while, when you're a writer, you write one that feels like a little gem. Boy, that feels good. It's wonderful to just be in a world for that perfect amount of time. Very unpopular now, but Woody Allen has this theory that he propounds that every story has an innate amount of time that it takes to tell it. Mm -hmm. And so I love reading and writing short stories, novels, and both reading and writing. I'm getting into novellas more and more. Mm. So, gosh, I write some heavier, dramatic short stories, some really bizarre short stories. Which one are you most proud of? There's one called Monster. And I'm putting together a collection, which I'd really like to be out this year. It's going to feature probably 9 to 13 of my short stories and the novella that I'm writing. I was going to do them separately. Then I thought, I'll put them together. There's nothing worse than going on Amazon. You've heard about something and you pay your $9 and you get something in the mail and it's like 75 pages. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, <laughs> I paid for Ten bucks for this, Jesus Christ! <laughs> more, I uh, can fan myself with this thing. But <laughs> uh, monster is my well. Actually, no. I have a short story called Hurtcore that has not been published, not previously published, and that's my favorite short story. And I will let you and your listeners in on a little secret okay. that. The premise for Hurtcore came about, I was watching this movie. It was a foreign movie, and it was pretty interesting. And I'm watching it and watching it, and it gets to the climax. 
And it was so disappointing. I was thinking, really? That's what it was? Mm -hmm. You're kidding me. It should have been this. And then I thought, hey, why don't I write it? And I'll make it about that. (laughs) That's a baller move right there. I'm going to make this right, (laughs) goddammit. That's about it. I'll really go for it. I was watching 13 Reasons Why. And something that happened between a couple characters in that. See, when I write short stories, I like to think of them as two trains that are on the same track. And when they hit, the explosion is the short story. Mm. That's how it is for me. Almost always, there's one element, which was this movie that I saw, where that was a shitty ending. It should have been this. And then watching 13 Reasons Why, and it wasn't something blatant. They were talking about something that happened in the past, and I'm imagining what that would have happened in those two trains hit. Mm -hmm. And I wrote 7,500 words in one day. It's interesting. You know, readers go by pages and writers go by amount of words. It's very interesting. But it turned out to be 10,000 words long. I've cut that down significantly. But to write an entire long short story in one sitting is a magical experience. I would have finished it, but I was physically unable. I have a bad back and I was exhausted. I was in so much pain. I could not finish the story, but as soon as I slept, I got right back up and I wrote the last 3,500 words. It was one of those that drops into a writer's head, drops into his lap, his or her lap, and just fully formed. Mm -hmm. And that's the most beautiful thing. Just record what I see. And so, yeah, that's going to be in my collection, hopefully out this year. If you'd let me go so I could do some damn work. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, when you say collection, you're talking about a short story collection? Yes. Okay. But you also have a new novella coming out this year, too, correct? That was the one that I decided to include in the collection. Rather than separating them. Okay. I figured, you know, just, you know. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I want to put them together and... Why have people spend their money on two different things? You know, just have one nice sized book of a bunch of my short stories and a novella, which is an alien invasion story. So it's more sci-fi, but it's sci-fi horror. Well, tell me about the life of Michael Schutz outside of writing. Mm, That is my life. (laughs) You're not living like the great Gatsby? (laughs) In my mind, boy, am I ever. Boy, am I ever. Um, Gosh, my favorite quote was, man, he was really put upon, even by, (laughs) like, I mean, oh, Stein and Hemingway were so mean to him. He made this comment once, the very rich are different from the poor. And Gertrude Stein said, yes, they have more money. (laughs) (laughs) He meant more than that. Okay. <laughs> um, I watch a lot of movies. I read a lot. I love my kitties. She's looking at me right now because it's past her food time. Oh, no. Which she's not out of food. I want everybody to understand this. <laughs> that her food bowls are full, but it's past time for when they were fed. She knows what time food is supposed to be. So even if she wasn't hungry... 
for breakfast mm. and it's still all there. It, it's time. It's time for food. So I, I get this from people a lot when they ask me how I'm doing and I tell them what I'm working on, how my short stories are going. And they say, that's what you're working on. That's your work. That's what you're writing. I asked how you're doing. <laughs> and I think to myself, I just told you how I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I'm halfway through a short story. I've got this idea for a novel. I collect mad magazines. Oh. I love mad. And I went on a shopping spree and I bought about 500 issues. And so I'm trying to complete my set mm-hmm. of all the magazines and then work on the paperback books. So I've been watching Bengals games and putting my Mad Magazines together. That's the life of Michael Schutz fiction is incredibly dull. <laughs> it's, it's very boring. It's very quiet. Uh-huh. It's very full of routine. And that's exactly how I like it. I make no bones about this. I like to talk about it so that people aren't ashamed. I am a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, right there with you. 13 years. What's your uh, if I, if sober I make date? It May 27th will be 13 years. I'm sorry. May 27th, you said? Yeah. Okay. So hopefully. I'd say God willing, but I'm a new atheist. <laughs> Mental illness. I suffer from bipolar. And that's like the main hindrance to my work is that I'll be going like full steam and then depression. And then I'm like down for a couple weeks, a couple months. So my life is very ordered. It's a lot of routine. It's a lot of order to keep me sane and a lot of social anxiety. I don't like to go outside. So I don't have to. I, you know, there's DoorDash now. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> I love COVID DoorDash. was wonderful for introverts. It really was. What was? <laughs> COVID. COVID. Everybody oh, else, yeah. Oh, my God, we're trapped inside. And I'm like, oh, my God, now I can just go to the doctor on video. Uh-huh. <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm sorry for those who suffered and suffered COVID. That could be a very callous thing for me to say, but yeah. Well, you know, you got to find good things out of the bad. One of the best things that ever happened to me during COVID is I fist bumped an 80 year old woman. (laughs) Because I mean, because I mean, you remember like COVID had kind of settled down a little bit. The people were still not cool with shaking hands, but they would fist bump, you know, because it wasn't such an intimate thing. So I was at my fiance's graduation. She went back to college to get her master's and there was a graduation party and a friend of her mother's was there that was somewhere in their eighties. And, you know, I was, I was raised by boomers. So I was taught when you are introduced to an elder, you shake their hands. So I re I reached out. She did the same, but halfway there, she started to close her hand. I was like, what, what the hell is happening? And just bam, fist bump. (laughs) Because that was going to be my question was if you just kind of punched her hand away. No, no, no. I I went full on fist bump. I I couldn't let that opportunity go. I love it. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, Michael, it has been great talking with you. Likewise. It was great to meet you, Vince. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um... Plain Children and Edging are still available. 
And I don't do that as a sales plug. I really don't. I just want to entertain and maybe scare the shit out of you. <laughs> um, and I really hope that I have that collection out to you this year. I'm going to try. I'm going to self-publish it because this day and age, you know, with the small presses, you know, you get into the micro presses, you start thinking, why didn't I just do this myself on Kindle? So I'm just going to do it all myself. Well, no, I mean, I'm going to have help. I'm not going to do all my <laughs> But yeah, so hopefully that will be out. Um, yeah. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Michael, thank you again for joining me. Thank you and stay dark, my friends. Oh. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Close to the light.